All right, we are back speaking with um, someone who knows a great deal about the media and how it covers things, and uh, we are grateful for his expertise, Jerry Polikoff. Jerry, I want to go back to like 1967. Um, You had gotten involved, I think, at that early stage when there weren't many people out criticizing the official version of events. Mark Lane had written a book. Harold Weisberg, who you came to know, had written a book. You became good friends with Sylvia Marr, a name not as well known as it ought to be, who wrote an excellent book. People like Tink Thompson. And they kind of started the counterattack. And, and I think that uh, I'd like to just take us back then because you got on board very early. Yeah, I, I like to think I was late first generation or <laughs> early second generation. I was a college student when John Kennedy was assassinated. And I was a huge fan. I wasn't very political, but I adored John Kennedy. Back in those days, people don't realize, especially people who weren't alive then, that it wasn't popular to think ill of the government. We believed the government back in those days. We didn't know about all the plots that came out from the uh, church committee and from Watergate. So I was one of those. I was naive if, you know, I didn't believe the government lied. And I didn't question that Oswald was the lone assassin of John Kennedy. And uh, and I was only 16 when, when John Kennedy was assassinated. And I went along my merry way until um, 1966. And that's when the early books started coming out. Harold Weisberg came out with Whitewash. Uh, the Whitewash series, he actually wrote several. King Thompson's book came out, came out in 1967, six, Six Seconds in Dallas, which actually made its way onto the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. And the media actually started paying attention. And there were a lot of articles about uh, this. The Washington Post put a page one piece about whitewash and inquest. Life magazine published an issue titled A a Matter of Reasonable Doubt, raising questions about... Did Oswald act alone? A matter of reasonable doubt. Yes. And when I first became aware that there was even a controversy, and this was in the summer of 1966, I remember it. It was, I read a column in the New York Post, which then was a liberal newspaper. It was either by Pete Hamill or, or Murray Kempton, I can't remember which, it was one of those. And they brought up questions that's been raised about the Warren Report, the single bullet theory, several questions. And the author said, you know, I believe the Warren Report, but by, you know, there's so many questions at this point, that we really need to seriously look into it. And my reaction was that there probably was nothing to it, but I would like to see, you know, read one of the books and convince myself that there was nothing to it. Right. And I read Inquest, which was really, in hindsight, not one of the better books. Edward J. Epstein, yeah. Yes. Just reading Inquest convinced me that there was something seriously wrong. And I went out and I bought Rush to Judgment, and I bought Whitewash, and I bought the 26 volumes of the Warren Report. Yeah, it cost almost $67 back then. Before I knew it, I mean, I had a pile of books, you know, six feet high, and the, not including the volumes. My mother thought I was insane. <laughs> Most of my friends thought I was insane until Watergate, when they started right. asking me how I knew. Even then, it didn't occur to me that it was a cover-up. It occurred to me that they made a terrible mistake. I even wrote a letter to Lyndon Johnson and 
a letter to Earl Warren, you guys have to take another look at this. You made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, it amazes me today that I was ever that naive, but right, I was. Right. But the more I read about it, the more it occurred to me this was not a mistake. This was a cover-up, and this was a government coup. It took me years to get to that point. Let's do a reset on that, because 1967, Life magazine is promising more in the way of taking a look, because they had the, the Zapruder film. Tink Thompson was involved as a researcher. He's looking at the film going like, oh, my God, we've got, we've got to talk about this. The New York Times, by, by I understand, uh, was looking, looking at it. They were going to have an investigation. And then suddenly it all kind of went to hell. They, they all kind of stopped looking at it. And CBS News came forward with a four-part series that more or less said, yeah, the Warren Commission, there's some flaws in it, but they got it right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Walter Cronkite in their four-part series, which included a behind-the-scenes consultant that they didn't put in the credits, and I revealed this in the Village Voice years later, uh-huh. John J. McCoy, who was a member of the Warren Commission, uh, who was involved in the finding, founding of the CIA. His daughter worked for Dick Slant, the head of CBS News, and when they were putting this thing together, uh, I had ten internal CBS documents involved with that project. And John J. McCoy's daughter, uh, Ellen McCoy, was carboned on every one of them. And she would take them home and show them to her father, who she always referred to as Daddy, (laughs) and then bring it back with notes like Daddy says and Daddy suggests. And one day she brings in a gift to the producer of the series, Les Midgley, from Daddy, and she said, now, Daddy doesn't want you to look at this as a bribe. <laughs> <laughs> but John J. McCloy helped this project. Jerry, i got to stop you for a second to, to just do a reset on that, because McCloy was one of the six men featured in an interesting book by Evan Thomas and Walter Isaacson about the wise men, the people that had influenced our foreign policy during and after World War II. And I was always struck when I read it, Jerry, that there was one sentence on 1963 that said, oh, yes, and he, Mr. McCloy did serve on the Warren Commission. One sentence, no elaboration. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Is it a coincidence that the daughter of somebody like that was the executive uh, assistant to the head of CBS News? That's wow. pretty interesting all by itself. Yes, it? it is. And it was an incredibly dishonest series, and uh, I believe it was in the fourth edition. I have a friend, had a friend who worked on those series and was fired because he tried to keep it honest, and they didn't appreciate that. He said, you know, Dan Rather was very involved Yeah. in, in that documentary series. Dan Rather was the first person to be shown the Zapruder film. They went on national television that said it showed the president hitting the head and being driven violently forward. Yes. And anyone who's seen the Zapruder films knows that it's hard to imagine that that's how they would see. I mean, he's driven... Uh, he's knocked backwards at backwards. first. Yeah, initial motion goes... Backwards. Yes. Walter Cronkite was the main narrator. My friend told me that Cronkite wasn't really involved. Cronkite was just reading a script. At one point, Cronkite asked because the their tests, which were loaded to support the lone assassin theory... and and still showed it was probably impossible for Oswald to have gotten off three shots in that period of time. And even with misses, right, let alone hits, uh, he said, 
could Oswald have fired the shots that killed President Kennedy? It said, under normal circumstances, the answer is no. This is also a quote I will never forget. I'm not reading this. Mm-hmm. Said, but these were not normal circumstances. Oswald was shooting at a president. I remember it very and, well myself. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, I guess, you know, when you're in the process of making history and... You become a much better shot. <laughs> you become a much better shot, yes. And they used a rifle that uh, could fire faster than the alleged assassination rifle. They used uh, marksmen that were allowed to um, practice extensively with the rifle. Yes. They shot at still targets rather than moving targets. They eliminated some of the rounds. Well, the rifle uh, jammed uh, a third of the time. They, about a third of them they eliminated. They didn't say why. They said because of a problem with the rifle. The third of the time we know now, because we know people inside the talk, it was either the rifle jammed or they couldn't get off three shots <laughs> in six seconds. Well, Jerry, Mr. Millen and I went out and we shot at our Carcano at the, at the rifle range, and yeah, they jam, they jam every third time. <laughs> we, could, we can back that up. Yes, it was once... Uh, is once named Italy's uh, contribution to humanitarian warfare <laughs> because it never killed anybody on purpose. You know? They did everything they could. They never showed the bullets. You know, they shot bullets into animal carcasses and cadavers' wrists. They never tried to duplicate the single bullet theory, getting one bullet through all of those items, but they simulated a wrist and they simulated a chest and they simulated a skull, but they never showed the bullets. And we know that they never showed the bullets because the bullets supposedly found on a stretcher in Parkland Hospital that inflicted seven wounds, seven non-fatal wounds, was in pristine condition, and every bullet that they fired was horribly mangled. And that's why they never showed them on the air. They also enlisted the help of Louis Alvarez, uh, who we should talk about it before we end today, because Louis Alvarez mm-hmm. enters the story on two occasions. Once to save... The, um, the issue of the fact that, as you mentioned, Dan Rather describes Kennedy going forward. Anyone who sees Zapper film now realizes he, his initial impulse is he's distinctly knocked backwards. Alvarez did some studies to claim, well, yeah, that's what happens when you shoot from one direction that comes back at the target, which is just cherry-picked data. It's really not. It's very right. dishonest science. And, and Alvarez also worked for the CIA. So what a surprise. And he had several contracts with the CIA. And what's perhaps most interesting, are you aware of what was what King Thompson discovered in Paul Hoke's files? Yes, I did. They cherry they cherry picked the data. Yes. Yeah. So Paul Hoke had the full film footage of those tests. And it turned out that some of the bullets he had mounted a watermelon on a ladder, and some of the bullets hit the watermelon and it went sideways, and some of them hit the watermelon and it went forward. And some of them hit the watermelon and went backwards. And uh, he just took the ones that went backwards and represented them as what happens when a bullet hits a skull. Yes, and indeed. fired from behind. So, yes. You know, I mean, all of these people are tainted. But the media put them forward as renowned experts. And this is why I say that uh, uh, this couldn't have been an accident. And it's solid evidence that Operation Mockingbird was a roaring success. 
Well, in the early 70s, in the wake of Watergate and a few other things, there were some efforts to take a look at government malfeasance. Uh, there was a Rockefeller panel, which sort of took a look at some of it. Uh, the Church Committee, the Pike Committee, they took a look at uh, government misbehavior. But really, it didn't really get back to anything that took place uh, in the case of JFK. It answered some questions, supposedly, but things were really turned turned on their head in 1975 when Robert Groden got a bootleg copy of the Zapper film and showed the nation what was actually on it. Right. You know, talking about the Church Committee, I mean, to this day, Gary Hart, Gary Hart ran the JFK uh, segment of that investigation. And to this day, Gary Hart says publicly, you know, we really couldn't run this stuff down, but we developed a lot of uh, leads that should have been followed up, and the media ignored them. You know, I understand Gary Hart ran a little bit of trouble later. I don't suppose there's any connection to his political activism on this particular area, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Bobby Kennedy Jr. did as well, almost the same thing. The House Select Committee did did result from the national outrage over people finally seeing that Zapruder film. They concluded that there was a quote-unquote probable conspiracy in JFK's case based on the acoustics evidence, which which I believe stands up to this day, but re-enter Louis Alvarez. I was the one who uh, broke that story. I broke that in New Times. It was leaked to me by Gate and Fonzie. And I also interviewed one of the acoustics experts that ran those tests. And he stood by them 100%. Matter of fact, he even went a little further. Well, I think if you take that evidence as valid and work back from it, uh, which I hope is still going to be possible to do as late as 2019, we're going to see things with a new level of clarity, I believe. What you have is defenders, you know, people, some of us call members of the Church of the Lone Assassin. If you listen to the tape carefully, you can see some church bells in the background (laughs) and some other sounds that we know don't come from Dealey Plaza and did not happen at exactly the same time as the Kennedy assassination. Acoustics is a science. Unlike a lot of other forensic sciences, it's a real science. I mean, it's not uh, phony science or garbage science. Well, the people that invented this the analysis, uh, Barger and other people, they now use this in Iraq. They use this in cities all over America to localize where a sniper is based on the sound waves that bounce off of buildings, off the, the echoes right. of the sound waves. Right. It's basically geometry. And what you do is you go and you test fire and you find out what the patterns in that area are and then you compare them to what's on the tape. Well, the reason that there were these sounds, if this was an original tape, those other sounds on the tape would have meant something. And clearly, when they copied the dictabelt, it picked up the other recording that was being played back with an earshot. And that doesn't disprove the validity of the recording at all. It just means that it picked up background noise that was recorded on a different tape at a different time. Yes, And, and the people that, that mm-hmm. tried to use that to discredit the acoustics never once dealt with the uh, calculations of the science that had been developed, and remember, it was two acoustics companies yes, yes. that they, came to the same conclusion. They sidestepped the hard science argument to say that, well, there's some crosstalk that must prove that it's wrong, but that itself is a flawed argument. Yeah. And by the way, acoustics has also now, quite some time ago, uh, documented that there were at least two people firing shots at Robert Kennedy 
and the outfits that did those analyses didn't even know what they were examining. They were just asked to conclude what was on those tapes. I had not heard that, Jerry. That's fascinating. Oh, yes. There was a, an amateur reporter that followed Bobby Kennedy into the pantry, and he had his tape recorder on, and he was hoping to get an interview. Years later, that, that was tracked down, and it was sent to two acoustics outfits. One of them was in Australia. I don't remember where the other one was. The story was broken at a scientific conference. MSNBC ran it as their lead story for an entire day. Nobody else covered it, and nobody's covered it since. Wow. They concluded with a very high degree of certainty that it revealed shots from, you know, 10 shots, 12 shots, I don't remember. But from uh, more than one direction. Yeah, but it, that, that did not hold up, but the acoustics does. And I don't think anybody's ever successfully even tried it. They just ignore it. Right. Just like they ignore it. Very few people know that all the shots that hit Kennedy were fired from behind, including the fatal shot that was fired from within roughly two inches behind his right ear at left mass and powder burns. Right. And Sir Han was standing several feet in front of him. That is not generally known. You're right. No, very few people know that. The, the autopsy proved there was a second gun, basically. Yes. And I once asked Thomas Noguchi at a, at a conference if he was aware of the inferences, the implications of his autopsy report. And he <laughs> just smiled. He smiled and he said, oh, yes. <laughs> so, you know, uh, the, the JFK autopsy was totally controlled. Uh, it was clearly manipulated. That was not the case with Bobby Kennedy. I mean, it, I mean, the overwhelming evidence. That it, it, some people suggest, well, Kennedy might have fallen forward and fallen, you know, into Sirhan's gun. That didn't happen. It's like Life magazine. In one of their early issues, uh, they remember they were the only ones that could even see the Zipper film. And there were already questions being raised. Well, how did Kennedy, all the early reports, including the doctors at Parkland Hospital, said Kennedy had been hit in the throat from the front. And people were wondering, well, how did he get hit in the throat if Oswald was behind him? And uh, this gentleman, Mandel, wrote an article describing the Zapruder film. And he mentioned that several people had questioned this, but the Zapruder film solved the problem because... It shows Kennedy turning around to wave at somebody in the crowd, <laughs> thus exposing his throat to the sniper's nest. <laughs> that never happened. Yeah, I understand they broke the plates and had to start over in Life magazine when they did that, realizing we're not going to be able to make that fly, I presume. Right. right. Well, you know, I mean, but in this case, they just lied about what it showed. Okay. What you're talking about is a, an issue. Uh, the initial issue in, of Life, yeah. Yeah, that went through what we thought was three different metamorphoses, each one tending to get rid of a previous issue that some might look at and think, gee, it looks like the shots came from the front. So it kept morphing. And in those days, again, you know, you have to put it in the context of the day. You know, today you could just do that and it wouldn't cost anything. Back then, everything was done on glass plates. And to break the plates and start over again cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we thought they did it three times. I recently learned there's a fourth version. Wow. So wow. It, that was incredibly expensive. 
And hundreds of thousands of dollars was serious money back in 1963. I actually asked Dick Stoley, who was the person that arranged to buy the Zapruder film for Time, Inc., how that happened. He, he claimed he never knew about it. Huh. And he couldn't explain it, and he said he was going to get back to me, which he never did. That had been written about so many times by then. It's inconceivable that he didn't know about it. Wow. But he wasn't ready to talk about it, obviously. Jerry, I'm sorry to report we're just about out of time talking about events from the last 55 years, but I have a sneaking feeling that this year in 2019, there may be some breakthroughs, and I hope that you'll come back and, and talk about them and, and other things as well. I'd love to. All right. Jerry Polikoff, thanks for speaking with us again. Well, we'll, we'll talk soon. Thanks. All right, let's take a couple minutes and do the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for bipartisanship after three Democratic Washington state senators signed on to a Republican state senator and Rivers bill that would make Sasquatch the official cryptid or crypto animal in Washington state. Yes. The bill recognizes the reclusive hominid for its, quote, immeasurable contributions to Washington State's cultural heritage and ecosystem, unquote. You know, and there are some people out there that say that government's broken and that politicians aren't doing anything. And yet here we have before us an example of bipartisanship crossing the aisle for common good. Woo! And on the other hand, a bad week for keeping it real after Democratic presidential candidate Kamala Harris told the hosts of a hip-hop radio show that in college she would smoke marijuana and listen to the music of Tupac and Snoop Dogg. But it turns out that Harris graduated from college in 1986, and Snoop and Tupac released their debut albums in 1993 and 1991, respectively. This one points out, well, it could have been some pretty good weed. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for public health with the on-air announcement by Fox News host Peter Hegseth that he hasn't washed his hands in 10 years because, quote, germs are not a real thing, unquote. Reportedly, Hegseth helpfully explained that I can't see them, therefore they're not real. Radio Parallax is unable to verify whether this has something to do with how Fox News covers global warming issues, but uh, I don't know, maybe. That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, but before I go, there is just one more item I wanted to slip in. This in the wake of a certain jackass I know, sending me an email disputing my take on the opioid crisis. He'd read an article that had a different opinion. Just want to add one final factoid that fentanyl has been found in nearly 75% of Massachusetts's overdose deaths. That's just one state, but I wonder if that doesn't hold true across the nation. 
According to data in that state, the deadly synthetic opioid fentanyl has largely outstripped heroin as the leading cause of death in Massachusetts. Experts say the powerful drug, considered to be up to 50 times as potent as regular heroin, has been working its way through manufacturers in China, two drug cartels in Mexico, before entering U.S. drug markets. Anyway, speaking as a medical professional who had to deal with the issues of opioid use and misuse for decades, I maintain that a great deal of this issue has to do with the politics of marijuana, which is now becoming legal everywhere in the United States. The drug war gets a lot of money, and if you're going to keep fighting it, you better find a big old enemy to fight. And I think the elected enemy has been opioids. And when I say that, I don't mean the kind your doctor prescribes for you when you're in pain. I mean the kind that gets manufactured in China and comes to the U.S. via Mexico and other countries. That's all I'm going to say today. For more information on this, refer to our previous interview on our website, radioparallax.com, with Dr. Roger Orman. All right, we'll see you next week. Watch the needle take another man gone.